The following is a conversation with Morgan Langle, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University in Canada. Morgan is a leader in the application of novel genomic techniques to the study of the microbiome. This is Inside Matters. My name is Dr. James McElroy. I hope you enjoy it. Have you lived in Canada all your life? Or did um, you... Yeah, except for a postdoc in California. I was there for a couple of years. Yeah. So yeah. How, did, how did you get into the field of the microbiome? Well, it sort of my undergrad training, I did it like bachelor's in biology and computer science. So back in, you know, early days, I sort of got into bioinformatics really early before you know, bioinformatics really existed, to be honest. It was just like a joint degree. Uh, and I remember at the time I talked to my dean of, uh, of computer science, I think, and I said, you know what? Why should I take these two degrees? Like, what would I ever do with it? And he was like, well, he's like, to Look be honest, know. he's like, they, they just sequenced the human genome. Just like, like it had just been done. Oh. And so, you know, people like you would in theory have the skills to, you know, you know to, to help analyze that data. And I remember thinking, huh, that's pretty that cool. sounds pretty cool. All right, I'll <laughs> stick with it. So it was five years instead of four. Um, but it's still really awkward in that, like, I was hardcore computer science courses and then, like, biology courses. But soon, soon later on, it became apparent because I remember my very first chance of research was, like, a summer student thing. And I was sort of working regular jobs before that, sort of. Like, I worked in um, hardware store growing up in high school. And then I uh, worked at, like, this uh, place that sort of builds houses and assembly lines. And uh, <laughs> I remember being, like... This last summer that I worked there, I was like, I, I can't do this next year. Like, I was just like, you know, I was on a sort of assembly line thing. I remember I gave, you know, one day I walked into this workplace and there was a stack of, of, of squares of wood like this. And it was about this high. And then he's like, okay, watch this. And he has this giant bands on. He's like, cuts a circle out of the middle of it. And he's like, okay, just keep doing that all day. And I'm just there like, what? Wow. So and I'm just like doing this and I'm like, I can't do this another summer. I'm like, no way. Like, <laughs> like I have a lot of jobs. I worked in a bar and stuff too. That was fun. But like, I can't come back to this next summer as a part-time job. So the next summer <laughs> I was like, oh, I mean, I should like try to do some research, right? I had good grades. Yeah. Of course I was like, left it off last minute and I didn't, you know, I was just like, oh, yeah, I'll just walk in and say who I am, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, I don't know what I was expecting. But uh, I remember still walking to this uh, fly genesis um, uh, office, and I, someone had told me that she was looking for someone for some summer research. So I walked in. and so a fly geneticist. Yeah, like yeah. Drosophila. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. So, um, so I was like, oh, you know, I said, I'm looking for some summer research, just wondering if you have any positions. And she looked at me like I had holes in my head. Like, <laughs> this is like, like, in theory, like two weeks before I would start too. So I'm like, she's like, uh, no, I don't think so. And I was like, oh, I'd heard from so-and-so because I have like, I've done some computer science stuff as well. I'm like doing both degrees. And she's like, oh no, no, you didn't tell me that. Oh, come on, come on in. Okay. Come on in. So that was like my first like, oh yeah, this is paying off, right? Like now I'm getting this chance. There so yeah. So anyway, long story short, that led to some, you know, undergrad research. And then I ended up doing a PhD in, in Vancouver uh, at uh, Simon Fraser University. And over the course of your training to that point, were you becoming more and more aware about, about the power of the computer in the context of sequencing yeah. and understanding communities and that, that kind of thing? Maybe not communities at that point, but, um, you know, 
at you know with the with the fly researcher we were studying uh, gene duplications in the Drosophila melanogaster and so that was interesting it was my first foray into be like oh okay yeah so i'm just you know finding things in these genomes like and it was pretty cool what were you finding oh at that time it was um special types of gene duplications called uh, retrotranspo- retrotransposed gene duplications so the idea is sometimes in eukaryotes You'll have a gene that's turned into, you know, it's transcribed into mRNA. Uh, and then that mRNA actually gets reverse transcribed and then uh, inserted back in the genome. So obviously gene duplications happen all the time, but this one's special in that if you had introns in your original gene, those get spliced out. And then when it's reverse transcribed uh, and then put back in, now that one doesn't have introns. So the cool thing is, is that you can find these, you know, I mean, this sounds like a very simple thing to search for now, right? This is like trivial, but back then it was like, wow, so we can look for the original gene and then we could find the new duplicated gene, right? And that sounds like super easy now, but like it hadn't been done in a model organism like that. So yeah, it was literally just searching for genes and then searching for its version somewhere else in the genome that didn't have transposons and then making a list of them. And is there like a known biological evolutionary advantage or purpose of this duplications or we just know what happens? I don't think so. I think it's just by, just by chance. I mean, everything happens by chance, but I don't think there's any serious advantage to it over a regular gene duplication. Right. Yeah. And the bioinformatics capabilities, pipeline, that kind of thing back then, yeah. Was it really basic? Oh, super basic. Super basic. <laughs> okay. So, so, what, uh, what is so bioinformatics, like, sorry. Yeah, so bioinformatics is just the, you know, computational analysis of biological data. It, it's very heavily rooted in genomics. Um, it's coming from like single, you know, the sequencing of a single genome. But it includes also things like, you know, studying protein structure, um, you know, searching for genes, building phylogenetic trees, all those are things within bioinformatics. And there's other things too, of course, nowadays, microbiome and, and machine learning. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, back then it was crazy. We would just take a, you know, so uh, a common bioinformatics tool is BLAST for anyone that's in the field. Like BLAST is this tool that just, you know, if you have a sequence and you want to search it in a database of a whole bunch of sequences, you would use this tool called Blast, just basic alignment, something, something, search. I should know what that is. But anyway, very, very simple, straightforward tool. That didn't, uh, it didn't really exist back then, or, or it did exist, but it was still sort of new. And uh, so just this idea of taking a sequence and searching in a database was very computationally expensive. So I had to log into this crazy server and and do that analysis, which would take, like nowadays, like, I don't know. I could do it on my phone, I guess. Like really? it would just be, yeah, or, <laughs> or like definitely on like your laptop in like a couple of minutes. And then I was like logging into the supercomputer somewhere and, and doing the analysis. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy to see how y- you start with those things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, yeah. So then I went to a PhD and mm-hmm. um, that was great. That was in Vancouver. It was kind of nice for me too, because I'd grew up in a small town in, in New Brunswick and um, uh you know, that was my first chance to sort of get out of a sort of small town feel a bit. And so I went to Vancouver, drove across Canada with my wife at the time and uh, 
started my PhD work there. And that was in basically sort of next level up, I would guess. So I went sort of from studying a single genome, like a single fruit fly genome, to then I was starting to study multiple bacteria genomes, right? So, cool. you know, typical thing as you think about you know, bacteria's pathogens, right? right. Uh, typically, so bad ones. Bad ones, and then you want to say, okay, what what makes this particular strain bad than this other one, right? Classic examples are like E. coli or whatever, right? Where you have, you know, some E. coli strains that are fine, and other ones that are, you know, obviously really bad. And so that work was to basically try to distinguish in the genome why these strains are bad and these ones are good by essentially looking at their genome and saying, okay, what's so different, right? right. And we were after particular regions that have horizontally transferred into the genome, right? So these things called genomic islands. Um, and so that happens in bacteria. You can get single gene transfer, but a lot of times basically you get this huge, you know, this large area of like 8, 10, 15, 20 genes all inserted into the genome. Okay. Yeah. What is the purpose of a genomic island? Yeah, well, uh, the idea is, I mean, uh, I guess the purpose of evolutionary is, is it gives a fitness advantage, yeah. So you'll get things that are, um, you know, pathogenicity islands that are, you know, related to pathogenicity, and then, but you can also get sort of metabolomic, or not metabolic, but like related to metabolism, so like just gives a certain advantage in a particular area. So you can just imagine you have a, yeah. you have a bacteria, it's it's pretty happy, right? But it you know it's struggling a bit, <laughs> and then all of a sudden in comes like this big chunk of DNA. It's got a whole bunch of genes, right? Not just one, and then there's a huge advantage to to sort of keeping that. How yep. do they, how do they acquire that gene? Oh, through well, well the main methods of horizontal gene transfer are like you know competence, right? So you blow holes in cells and but some 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 bacteria are normally competent, right? So they just allow uptake of DNA. Other really? what, Yes. Goodness me, I didn't know that. That's oh, so interesting. Yeah. So yeah. They can so, just suck up DNA and integrate it into their machinery? Yeah, absolutely. Whoa. Yeah. I didn't know that. Of course. That's why I've probably <laughs> been in this field for how long? And I don't know that. Is that really basic? That's yeah, basic. That's okay. Don't worry. I'm 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 cool with that's with okay. Sweet, it's all good. It's a learning experience for me, just as it will be for all the listeners. But I think that's so interesting. Well, no, so they do that. This there's three cool. there's three methods. So there's super that cool. one. Uh and then there's uh transduction, which is basically when you know you Bacteria have viruses called phage, right? Right. So phage infect bacteria and, uh, and, and kill them. And <laughs> yeah, good job. Okay. <laughs> and then, but what happens sometimes is those phage, you know, when they kill a cell, they replicate and then they package DNA into themselves. Sometimes they suck up part of the bacterial genome just by accident. Just oh by, my. And then it goes into the phage and then the phage goes to its next host. Wow. And then they transfer that DNA from this one bacteria to another. So that's... That's horizontal gene transfer through uh, transduction. Wow. Yeah. And, and then the last a, one. There's uh, a lot of phage, right? Oh, there's a lot of phage, yeah. And so it's just a numbers game. It's very rare. You're thinking, well, why would they do that? Well, they don't do it on purpose. It's just, it just because you're talking about like just tons of this, right? And it's just so high. Like it's low frequency, but there's it happens so much because there's so much of it. And then a lot of times it obviously it doesn't confer an advantage to the bacteria. So it just right. sort of goes away. But if it does, well, then the bacteria is like, ooh, score. Like, plus that that bacteria that the phage went into has to survive, right? So it has to sort of like push it in and then also survive. And then, bam, it's just like 
It's a, you know, it, it, it's like, it's like a like, king. It's just like, yeah, yeah, I survived and I got a new gene and it's like all my progeny now are just going to be like, yeah, score. Yeah, it sounds almost like a sort of superhuman type fictional thing. Like yeah. it goes and just sucks up all this DNA and some of it confers an advantage and then it levels up then it might level up again and then suddenly it's leveled up like 10 times it's like a super saiyan have you ever seen Dragon Ball Z maybe not yes yeah. I have <laughs> yes yeah yeah. Uh, I just think that's so cool and, and there's conjugation last so I just oh, want to round yeah, right it there's off. three right so the conjugation excited. I've got to educate everyone so yeah. conjugation last one that's when basically it's the closest <laughs> thing that bacteria get to having sex right they just they come together they form a little connection and then they share share DNA between each other Wow. Yeah. Didn't know that either. Yeah. Bacteria, amazing. I always talk about it in my uh, antimicrobial like resistance um, stuff when I'm talking about pharmacology and about antibiotics and why does resistance rise up so much, right? Yeah. It's like not only do they, you know, just select and they, they replicate so much, but they can share DNA. You know, it's like me being like, I can't play basketball. So I could either like, you know, hope that I get a mutation and my kids can play basketball or I could just go down the road, find like a really good, you know, this is it. Michael Jordan's like, you know, <laughs> relative or something and share some DNA. And, and now I can play basketball really good. Like, or you tap back. into the matrix. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. yeah. I know Kung Fu. Yeah. Back to you. Got it going on. <laughs> I got it going on. Yeah. So this is super cool. I'm, I made a note to say, can we talk about conjugation and horizontal gene transfer in the context of FMT later. So sure. let's definitely do okay. that. Because yeah. but yeah. just just yeah. you so you I said yesterday your talk blew my mind and we will get onto that once we go through your story. Yeah. But every time I learn something new about the microbiome, just like I've done there and I appreciate super basic sort of genetic stuff. But yeah. I'm just like, wow, this system is so complex. It is so Yeah blooming complicated yeah. yeah you know and we've just been talking about bacteria and to be fair some phase but there's fungi in there as well isn't of course, there and yeah. it's all just interacting and feeding and eating and conjugating and horizontal gene transferring yeah. that's mad yeah now you're developing new tools to study all of that and that's super cool now before we get on to what you're doing now you want to just take us through to the postdoc and what sure. you learned yeah so i guess quickly the, the phd was on these genomic guidance so at that time i it was my first foray into creating a bioinformatic tool, right? So I made this bioinformatic tool called Island Viewer, which basically allowed people to upload their newly sequenced bacteria genome and search it against other similar genomes, right? And identify these genomic islands. Uh, and it has like a little visual interface and then you, and you can upload genomes to it and it's still going. It's like on its fourth version, like the PI kept. Um, oh, really? Yeah, she she kept doing it, Fiona Brinkman. So it's, People are using this? And people are still using it. Wow, yeah, so, wow. you know, but it was nice because it was like my first sort Congrats. of thing and it's still going, like like my baby's still going out there a little bit and being developed by other people. So that's that was really cool, really rewarding. And, that is you cool. know, just to come back a little bit about how much the field's grown, I remember at the time when I started my PhD, there was less than 100 bacterial genomes in NCBI. Uh, the NCBI is like this large database. So just the database that hosts all bacterial genomes, there's less than 100. And by the time I finished my PhD, it was at like 250 or 300 bacterial genomes. And I just thought, that's huge. Like that's a huge number of genomes. Because at the first of it, people were like, well, this seems kind of useful, but why don't you just, you know, you can just do that manually. I'm like, well, in the future, it's going to be, you're going to have genomes everywhere, so you're not going to have time to like, do it one by one manually. You just want to upload it and, and get it done. And, uh, you know, and of course now we have 
tens of thousands of bacterial genomes. I mean, it's just it's just nuts. So yeah. Do we have all the bacterial genomes? No, of course not. No. 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 How far away are we? Oh, that's hard to estimate, right? Um, mm, I can't put a number on it. There's been a few nice papers though where they they have done work on this. Uh, comes to mind my postdoc actually supervisor in California, uh, Jonathan Eisen. So he had this project called um, uh, GIBA, the Genomic, Encyclo Genomic Encyclopedia of Bacteria and Archaea. And so they were trying to essentially expand, you know, the number of genome sequence, but not just in the same area. So what happens right. early on is we focus on pathogens. And so we sequence, you know, those pathogens over and over. Uh, and of course, you know, we know that, you know, that's limited by culturing too in the early days, right? So we were culturing those genomes and then we're sort of restricting ourselves to those things we can culture. And so Giba was sort of focused on, okay, let's, instead of just sequencing more of these things, let's try to expand essentially the tree of life so that we can cover more diverse things and we get an approximation really of the full repertoire. But even then when that was published, probably... 2004, maybe that paper, you know, they had this curve of, you know, you can imagine if you sequence more genomes, you can start to get an idea of if you're at the top plateau of this curve or not. And it was, it was not, it was wow. like, it was here, it was like here. And then the full thing was like, wow, astronomical, like off the charts. Right. Wow. Yeah. And, that's uh, and, and it's, it, well, it's environmental, right? I mean, so if we think about human microbiome, sure, we're we're getting a pretty good reference database of, of microbial genomes in the gut. Um, but if we think environmental, I mean, there's just so much diversity. There's so much diversity. Yeah. Sequence any soil anywhere and you're going to find, you know, stuff you haven't seen. Like, wow, 40% at least. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So the whole planet has microbiomes. Of course. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any area that, I don't know. I don't think there'd be any area that doesn't. You know, wow. they they found no. There's microbes everywhere. You know, like deep sea vents. Yeah, there's, there's microbes there. These extremophilic microbes. Yeah. they're like 135 degrees yeah, Celsius. Like it's insane. These they've done like these crazy cores at the bottom of the ocean, like <clears throat> some crazy distance. Again, I mean, I, I just don't know. And they they dig and dig and dig and they like some crazy distance under the sediment. And they, they sequence it and there's microbes and they're like, they're like, they're like viable. They're not just like relic wow. DNA. They're like, you can grow them up. They're thriving. They're, well, I don't know if they're thriving, but like they're living and waiting for their moment, I guess their yeah. moment of glory or something, or, or maybe they're never going to get a moment of glory and they don't realize it or something, <laughs> but like, yeah, there's low level metabolism. I mean, it just, it blows my mind. Yeah. It uh, blows my mind too. Do you yeah. think that there'll be bugs in space? <clears throat> Well, uh, not that we will find right away, I don't think. No? No. Too inhospitable or? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, I think because all of a sudden you get to this point where, I mean, that's life, right? So you're talking about life in space, right? I mean, I don't, that's the big question. when, when we think about life in space, we think about aliens. But I mean, the reality is it's just as big if it's bacteria. Oh, I know huge. people wouldn't be excited about it. People well, wouldn't be I, like, whoa. I but I mean, if we found any other life form anywhere else, I mean, that's a huge jump. Of course, I, it'd be cool to have like intelligent life forms yeah. or something, like some animals running around. But 
or, if or we found cooler than that, like yeah, some, yeah, that some, civilization, yeah, that'd be really cool, super cool. Yeah. But the reality is, I think if it's a distance thing, right? I mean, like if if there was actually life out there that we could get to, the chances are of them being simpler than us, right? Is right. like the time scale is just right. you know it it seems too similar. Do you know what I mean? Like the time scale is too tight for that to really work well. Right. And I'm not saying that they'd have to evolve to something, you know, better. I'm just saying that they would, Is you it, think about how life started here, what, 4 billion years ago. So, but that time scale is quite small for, for life. 4 billion, is that what it is? Or 3 billion? I can never remember these numbers, you know, but it's, it's in that range, I think. Right. Right. And so, yeah, you, you would, I think you, we would have to travel really far. We'd have to be able to travel larger distance to to increase our probability of finding life elsewhere. Right. If that right. makes sense. It does. I mean, there's some theories to say that maybe the life here originated from somewhere mm. else and something arrived at some point in time. But yeah, this is the, I'm I'm not an expert by any way, shape, or form yeah. in this area. But I do like to ponder if there were microbes in space, what would they be like? And also if there were microbes on one of the planets that we're trying to colonize, say Mars. Yeah. Um, how do we know they're not like uber pathogens for us? Oh yeah. They could just be yeah. brutal. They could. And likewise, we might seed whatever microbiomes are on there with our microbiome and ruin whatever is there in terms of life. But yeah, I mean that Unless it was like, you know, really a descendant of, yeah, what seeded us, which I don't think it would be, the chance of it infecting people are just probably unlikely. Because it's not evolved to do that. It's not evolved to do it. It's just like me trying to eat like space rock, you know, like that's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's not a fair comparison, but I don't know. Like, it, it, I think it's so, it'd be so far out of their realm. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe not. So, so so within the the human microbiome then, in terms of diversity, sorry. We, yeah, we I'm, have to bring it back I, here eventually. I, I, well, I could I could stay on space and aliens forever. I am so interested in that. Um, but this is inside matters, and we're a microbiome gut health podcast. Right. Absolutely. Um, so, in terms of human microbiome diversity, yeah, you mentioned that we've got good maps now of kind of the various different things that have been cultured and have been sequenced and have been identified. But is there still some like dark matter in there? That, oh yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you're still going to, you're still going to find new species of bacteria in the gut. Uh, definitely obviously new strains, maybe even like a bit more newer stuff than that. Like maybe a whole new genus I think is probably possible, but that's just bacteria, right? So if we talk about like phage, oh, like we, that's just wide open, right? I mean, there's some recent papers sort of studying that, you know, phage dark matter in the gut or other other areas. And so we're just scratching the surface there, right? So it's sort of, wow. I think the estimate's around sort of 10 phage per per one of bacteria. Is, is, but wow. these are those numbers that are sort of thrown out there. I never know how accurate yeah. they are, right? But, you know, it's... Because it used to be 10 bugs <laughs> to every human cell, and then we were like, nah. Yeah, nah. Someone, yeah. I read that someone just literally did like a back of the napkin calculation and was like, yeah, it's probably 10 to 1. Yeah, and then everyone used it for like ever. And then yeah. someone's like, maybe we should actually... We should, we should actually <laughs> check that. Check yeah? that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because you still see some like... Uh, I don't want to use any names, but like you see some publications that are like mainstream, and yes, ten cells to one. And I'm like, well, you've uh, not really been keeping up to date. <laughs> yeah, have you? exactly. That's not true no, anymore. No. Um, so it's one to one, but then I guess probably fluxes a little bit. I mean, if you go to the loo, 
and you have a big bowel movement, you're oh, probably yeah. losing like loads of bugs. Yeah, no, I think you, right? that's the idea, right? Like, so you're sort of maybe one to one at some point, but you can go a bit more microbial cells to human cells, and then yeah, I mean, it just comes post post morning. You're you're probably more human. Finally, <laughs> that's why you feel so much better. Like you're like, oh, I'm human again. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Uh, well, you know, um, <laughs> it's really interesting that. We just flush out so many bugs every day. People don't realize. Yeah. They don't know how many bugs are on them, inside of them, and how efficient the colon is. Yeah. At basically allowing bugs to replicate, right? It yeah. has to be the most efficient fermenter system yeah. ever. Yeah. In the universe, dare I say. Yeah. It could be. I mean, I mean, I'm, there might be some other animals. I guess you You'd have to argue that one somehow. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. The cow and the horse have got some cool stuff. Yeah, they got some cool stuff too. I don't know how you evaluate cooler. But yeah, I mean, it's a (laughs) a great system for them, right? I mean, they have a stable temperature, constant influx of of lots of nice nutrients for them. Maybe not too much crazy competition because, you know, they got some new bacteria coming in, but they're sort of limited. And yeah, they're they're all set, really. It sounds like a nice home. Yeah. And I guess just for the listener, the, the human microbiome, although it differs between each human, like there are similarities between the bugs compared to say what would live in a horse or what would live in a cow. Is that correct? Or Yeah. 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 This, this It's always a hard concept to say like similar versus or core species, you know, because it's just a definition. But yeah, absolutely. Like we're, our guts are more similar than mine to another animal's for sure. That's right. that's safe to say for sure. Right. But there's more diversity between my gut and your gut in terms of microbiome than my genome and a banana's genome. Is that right? Uh, oh, let me think about this. Because there's, oh. <laughs> <laughs> because there's so many, there's so much genetic diversity in the microbiome. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously we, if we're talking about genes and things, right. Yeah. We, you know, we, we sequence the human genome and, 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 the number of genes and, and microbes is way, way more, way more, yeah. way more, way more potential there. Um, we don't know what all the genes do yet, do we? No, no. Wow. No. So there could be cures and things like that that just live inside our body. Yeah. New antimicrobes. Of course. Yeah. 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 Lots of anti, there's probably lots of antimicrobials there for sure. Because that's where a lot of our antibiotics came from in the first place, right? So Right. Yeah. Right. Just living inside of us. Just living inside the, of us. The cure's there. Yeah. So, in terms of discovering the cures, profiling the genetic genomic potential, this is where the bioinformatics and the sequencing comes in, right? Yeah. Because on the one hand, I suppose you could try and culture them all from everybody yeah. and figure out what they produce and so on, but that's probably not realistic or practical. It's not practical. It's the difficult part. I mean, there is a lot of value in trying to grow them up and, and having that catalog, right? But it, it, you go from trying to do that one by one or some high throughput fashion uh, to you can just sequence it all and try to put it back together again. And it's not perfect. There's there's problems with that, right? Uh, but it's like a one shot deal, right? So I mean, if if we get really good at it, now, you're talking about sample sequence it, you know, in a day or two. And if your biomax is perfect, now you have every you know, every microbe in there, genome all sequenced perfectly, and you sort of know the the numbers of them as well too, right? Like, so you know, oh, there's right. eight of these and 25 of those, right. or, you know, at least 
double double this number or something. You mentioned bioinformatics and the word perfect. <laughs> those don't those don't go together. <laughs> I'm smiling and laughing because I am uh, familiar with your work. Yeah, where you essentially have proven that they're not perfect. No, no and it's kind not. of it kind of well, it did blow my mind. I told you yesterday, you blow my mind. Um, can we move on to like where you're at now in terms of your lab, and then we can talk about perfect bioinformatics and all, <laughs> and, and all, all the great work you're doing to try and achieve that goal yeah so you went from the postdoc yeah so we went from a postdoc there at the time um i was doing some ocean microbiome too just to back up just a, a split second there and and so that's mostly because microbiome stuff started environment right it started with more people studying it in soils and oceans before we really even got to human gut right so that was a big thing first metagenomics I think I'm pretty sure like, well, the first widespread genomics where we're sequencing all the DNA was done in the ocean, right? Wow. By Craig Venter, of course, the guy that did the human genome on, the, his, on his yacht. He did it on his yacht. He's yes. just super yacht. And, oh. Yeah, and he just sailed around and then collected samples and then wow. it was like put the data out there and it was huge. Yeah. That sounds cool. So, but then it was the same problems, right? It was like looking at how do we analyze this data, right? And, and, and figure it out, put it back together and make the correct inferences from the data, right? So you started in ocean, but then the my next postdoc after that was human microbiome. And it's the same. <clears throat> it's the same problem. It's just a different uh, different community, different uh, different area, right? Um, so so yeah. So I sort of moved into human microbiome, which is really exciting because you know, obviously the implications are there for, for human health and then you get different diseases and then it's a host community relationship as opposed to just like when you're looking at oceans or soil, it's like environment, which is also really cool, but it's it's sort of a different thing, right? So anything where you have like a host interaction directly with the community of microbes is, is pretty cool. And of course it's us. And then so the whole idea that it could be actually useful, not just like this is really cool science, but it's like also potentially really useful for like diseases and things. I mean, that's that got everyone hyped up because right. everyone's like, oh, we'll just study disease this way and we'll, you know, look at your genome and we'll sequence your genome and figure out what's wrong with your genes. And, oh, yeah, there's some environmental pressures and we'll figure that out. And in all sense, like, you know, microbes that were just relic to, like, pathogens, essentially, right, that we should right. just nuke with antibiotics every once in a while to get rid of them and wash our hands. All of a sudden it's like, oh, like – these things look cool. This is important. And it's like, and it's been there. Like, this is just a recent thing still. This is like, what, 10, 15 years right. we're talking about. Right. And then, of course, everything starts coming in and be like, oh, like really big differences with changes in your gut to this disease. And everyone starts looking at it and, and it's just more and more papers coming right. out and, right. you know, and the studies in, in mice and stuff that just show not, not just that it's different, that you can like just take microbes from this mouse, put in this mouse and like, they do different things, right? right. From like right. getting fat to like acting differently, yep. right? All just because you take these microbes from this and put them in this and then they like they literally are just phenotypically different. Right. We're not talking about knocking out their genes or anything else crazy. It's just putting poo from here to here. It's incredible. No. Yeah. And we've also taken poo from humans yeah. with particular characteristics, moved them into mice yeah. and the same thing happens. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, you know, so that gets everybody jazzed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so so my lab tends to, you know, we're sort of multidisciplinary. My my background is obviously in bioinformatics and 
and a lot of passion in that area and creating like new tools that essentially the field, you know, the field uses, right? Um, and so our lab is sort of split up between people doing what I would say sort of typical microbiome projects where they're, you know, we have a data set either through a collaborator or we're generating our own data through us, like a mouse study or an adult, like a biobank longitudinal study. We're grabbing that, that data and then we're doing a, you know, sort of what I would say a typical microbiome project, right? And so there's no tool development there, but they're, they're running the tools, they're doing the bioinformatics, which is the heavy lifting of, of that project. And then another part of it is, is, you know, actual like generating new tools. And those two things go together quite well because what happens a lot in bioinformatics is you get computer science people that make the tools, but they might not actually, you know, know the data that well. Like right. they know the problem, but they right. don't live it and breathe it. They don't, they don't actually analyze data sets themselves. And so that disconnect is, is not great, right? So you have people making tools, but they're not quite right for the job or they don't quite get it. Right. And so that's why you'll see a lot of tools just they, they get made. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're just not quite fitting what they should be doing right. Um, and so sort of be able to create tools and, and test tools, as we'll talk about, while running the projects, you know, you just see where the bottlenecks are. You see, yep. why can't we do this properly? Oh, well, we should make a tool to do that, right? right. Um, so there's like an R&D engine almost, and then there's like supporting, I guess, research studies and microbiome researchers understand their data and provide them with the data, actually. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. yeah. I mean, when you think about a microbiome project and human microbiome project, like people don't really appreciate when they come into the field is that a lot of that work is actually bioinformatics now. Yeah. Like it's, they set up their nice experiment and, and they think it's great and they're like, okay, they, they hand like, you know, fecal material from people or little mouse pellets or something. But the sequencing is like pretty straightforward now, very high tech. Don't get me wrong, we're still doing a lot of that in that area as well, but fairly straightforward and routine now. Uh, is that and, just because the workflows exist, the, the engineering is standardized and, and is yeah, high-tech. Yeah, the, because, of, well, yeah, a bit of monopolies there too. It doesn't, doesn't hurt, I guess. Monopolies aren't great either. But yeah, I mean, the, the tech has settled down a bit. Illumina has really become key, king, I guess, in, in the, the short read sequencing. And so because of that, that streamlined a lot of the processes. That being said, I mean, we're still not fully done on sequencing, right? Like, so right. long reads are huge. They're coming out now. And so what's the difference between a short read and a long read? Uh, yeah. So short read is, um, you know, something that would be typically, uh, so just to back up quickly, like you would have your first type of sequencing was from like first generation, which would be like Sanger sequencing. Like that's right. what was used like a long time ago, <laughs> you know, where you have one piece of DNA, you sequence it yep. and that's it. And then along came sort wow. of, sort of next-gen sequencers, second-gen sequencers, which was essentially now on a single sort of plate or well system, you can take multiple pieces of DNA and sequence them all at the same time, right? And we're talking about density of putting millions of fragments on a, on a chip the size of a, like a computer chip, right? Um, and, and sequencing those up. But because of the density and how they sort of operate with optics currently, so that's mostly driven by... Um, by Illumina, it, it's like an actual picture of this crazy depth that's picking up color changes in a density of like the computer chip, but with like 
know, millions to I don't know, like hundreds of millions of these dots. Wow. Right. Wow. And so you can imagine there, there's a, there's a limit to there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so, sorry, it's not a computer chip. It's like a flow cell. It's about like this big, but like the area would Super be a computer cool. chip. Anyway, Super anyway, cool. that's really techie. Um, so short reads. Yeah. So the, the downside to those is that they're, they're sort of limited in their, in their length. So Lumina's top length is like 300 base pairs. Right. Okay. And that's that's sort of on one machine. They're they the most high spec machine. The the most throughput is like two fifty. And then typically though we're we're generating like one hundred and fifty base pairs for a lot of things. And you get one hundred and fifty base pairs in one direction, one hundred and fifty in the other. Uh, but those are sh- short short reads. So there's limitations because of the fact that they're short. Right. Got it. Uh, and then so now there's there's newer approaches that are generating long reads, which we're talking you know, 8KB, 10KB, 20KB. Wow. That's 20,000 base pairs, right? So, wow. Um, you know, what's the advantage in, in doing the bigger ones? Yeah, mostly um, mostly with like assembly. So essentially how you put those fragments back together to form the original genome, right? So you can right. imagine if you have a big genome, Got it. right? And you're trying to put those fragments back together, if you have little short fragments, sometimes that's really hard, right? Because chromosomes have problems, like where it's repetitive regions right. or just things that make that really hard. Right. So is it like the analogy is you're trying to rebuild the jigsaw? Yeah. And if you've got longer reads, you've got bits that are already strung together and it becomes easier or? Yeah, it's just, like, it's just like a jigsaw puzzle where you have lots of little pieces, right? Versus now you can imagine instead of little blocks, you have like a block of 10. And so imagine how much easier that is to put the puzzle together. Got it. Right? But I mean, sometimes it doesn't matter. So for like some things, you don't, you don't need to put the puzzle together. You just map them to essentially a reference genome uh, and it works fine. So Got like it. say if you're measuring in humans, like their amount of RNA from a certain transcript, you don't even know what that transcript looks like. You just try to, you're just using it to count. You don't need to reassemble it. Got it. But what happens if you want to know if there's actually like a big difference in that transcript, right? Like what happens if it's like an, a different mRNA we've never seen before? Anyway, very technical, but yeah. So the long read very stuff's really cool. It just, it really helps with, you know. Does you it know, make the bioinformatics easier? Yes. Yeah, in theory, right. yeah, right. yeah. Because now it's, it, it's like instead of like trying to do that assembly and, and hope that it works really well, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have a real read. And it's like, no, those things... That's it. That's like it. that's an actual readout and you're like much So more it, is it fair to say yeah. the bioinformatics then, I guess for the listener and, and for me, is helping re put the jigsaw back together? That's what the bioinformatics tools do? Yeah. Or do they help you identify what the jigsaw pieces are as well? Oh yeah, of- yeah, no, definitely. It's not just that. So that's one one part is that assembly part. But also absolutely trying to figure out what those genes are what do they what do what, they code for and what do they code for yeah. and what functions are they and then also you know either through that assembly you, i mean so you can imagine either if you take you know a short read or you assemble it you have to find out what what species does this belong to like it doesn't come with a label on it right that says i'm e coli so you have to you have to you have to say okay what does this fragment of dna what did it probably come from right, right. what what type of bacteria and then, right. so that's where we use these huge reference databases to sort of say, yeah, well, you know, it's a hundred percent identical to this one, the database. Yeah. That's simple. It's that thing. What happens if it's 90%, you know, and it's like, well, that looks do you, like, do you, that. what is the cutoff or is that quite controversial? Like, uh, there is no cutoff. There's like, um, 
Well, there's there's different ways around it essentially. So so what happens is if if you want to really call something, say a, a species level, right? Like a species of something that oh, this is it's too technical. But essentially, you basically there is a there is a cutoff where you would say, okay, this is probably that species right. with some boundaries around it. Right. But if you have uh, if if the if it's really not similar, so say it goes down to ninety percent, then you you just can't identify it that species, and you're like, well, I think it's probably now this genus or maybe this family. Oh, interesting, you know I see what I mean? And so yeah, you it. don't know for sure what it is in there, but you're like, oh, I know it's at least in this family of things. That's that's the that's a general idea around it. Yeah. Got it. And that brings us maybe quite nicely onto the different types of profiling you can do. Yeah. So the marker gene surveys versus like the full shotgun metagenomics. Yeah. So yeah. like, what are the differences and what are the benefits to I guess both? if there are benefits over one or the other, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So there's sort of broad, to the two broad categories are absolutely that is one is called, um, you know, amplicon sequencing and or what people often call 16S ribosomal RNA gene sequencing. But amplicon sequencing just means that you're essentially taking a marker gene. You're taking a gene that's yep. hopefully present in all your bacteria, say that you're going to profile or whatever you are profiling, and you're just going to sequence that one gene or at least a fragment of the gene over and over and over again. And it's just like a barcode for, for different things. Um, and so you can use that to essentially say, you know, okay, just what we were talking about before, like I'll sign this now to this database. I know this yep. species is, is in the database, so I'll sign at that. And then we just can count those things, right? So it's great for saying these are the th – that's what's in your sample. This is, this is, you know, that's who's in there. What kind of resolution can we get to? Yeah, that's argued a little bit. A bit, I would say to the species sometimes, um, yep. not really strain level, and often a lot of times we can only get to the genus level too. Got it. Yeah, got it. And there can be massive differences within each category, right? Particularly at strain level. We yeah. Spoke about E. coli. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So just because we're only using this one gene, right? So you can imagine you get a hundred percent identical match. That doesn't mean the rest of the genome is all the same at all. Got it. Right. So there could be lots of variation that happened because of, say, these genomic islands I was talking about, right? You get horizontal gene transfer in. Got it. That didn't change your barcode sequence at all. It looks identical. A whole new strain, whole new thing. So the benefits of 16SNR speed, cost? Cost is, I would say, number one, yeah, because uh, and just because you're sequencing this one thing, like this one short right. area. So actually, when we were talking about short read sequencing, we tend to sequence a fragment where those those reads overlap. So we're talking about getting a region maybe, well, for a lot of stuff we do is about 450 base pairs, right? Because you take 300 and 300 and you overlap them some. Yep. Uh, but some people only do like a smaller fragment. So you're getting a fragment about three to 450 base pairs and that's what you're using, right? Got so you it. can imagine that doesn't cost too much to do that. Got it. Um, and then... If, yeah. Sorry, if you're looking at the ecology as a whole and you're looking at diversity and using indexes to profile the ecology... Does it matter that you don't get down to the species or strain level resolution? Um, I mean, so I think it does. It, it, it sort of matters. It depends on the context. So yes, so you're basically losing information, right? You're losing information on those at that strain level. But if you're trying to get some broad measures of how different your communities are between, between a couple of groups, then... Yeah then it works just fine, right? Because you're saying, okay, well, is there a difference? And if so, what, what do those differences look like? Of course, you're going to miss some of that nice fine level resolution. 
Um, Got it. But there's always sort of more to do. There's always more resolution, but it just depends where your cutoff is. But yeah, so it's it's nice. It's uh, widely used. The tools around it are a bit more straightforward too. Like it's just it's it's quite. I would say mature from a from a biofmatic standpoint, even even though there's some stuff going on there. But yeah. Got it. So yeah. it kind of depends on the question you want answered. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And but you'll see it as a. Definitely a go-to if you're going into a new area and you're like, I just want to do like some pilot microbiome studies to see what's different. Yeah. Then it works great. Some uh, people say you yeah. have to do strain level resolution. You have to do shotgun yeah. methods. Yeah. Not interested in 16S anymore. Yeah. Is that like quite a faddy thing we've got at the moment? Is there is there value in that statement? I think there's value in the statement. Um, it I. It's a bit elitist a little bit, you know what I mean? It's, it's, <laughs> it's a bit, uh, it, I, I think with anything, it's a bit, um, it's a bit much uh, at times, right? To say someone shouldn't be doing it because it's a waste of their time. But I mean, this has been going on for a while. I mean, five, yep. I remember five years ago, people were saying, oh, you, no one's going to be doing 16S anymore sequencing. They're going to, really? they're all going to do metagenomics. And, right. you know, I was like, oh, okay, we'll see. And then, I mean, it's still, still a go-to, right? It's just a cost factor. We're talking about a magnitude of about 10 times the cost, right? Still today? Uh, yeah, probably. Okay. Maybe just a little less than that, but really close to that. What's the driver of the difference in cost? And I guess that takes us on to what is shotgun yeah. metagenomics. Yeah. So I, again, it's this, so you're only sequence this small fragment. Shotgun metagenomics is, you know, instead of amplifying and sequencing up this little barcode, you just take all the DNA in the sample, you sequence it all and and that's it. <laughs> uh, so the beauty in that is that, hey, if we do this assembly thing where we can put things back together, now we actually have genomes, right? right? So not only can we identify what's in there, but we can also annotate those microbial genes, right? And we get an idea about what function they're doing. Right. And on top of it, because we're not, we have more than just a little fragment of DNA, we have a whole bunch of DNA for that species, hopefully, we can get better taxonomic resolution. So sometimes we can get down to strain level. Okay. Uh, and so we do get that better resolution. So there's there's multiple there's multiple things that metagenomics gives you that that the 16S Amplicon approach doesn't, Got right? It. So metagenomics gives you the the functional sort of potential. It has the these uh, partially assembled genomes. So you can actually just get and sometimes full genomes now out of like metagenomics, right? So instead of like culturing one of these things over and over, you just take one shotgun, one metagenomic run, pull all these genomes out. You do a lot of quality filtering to make sure they look complete. Right. And now you've got like hundreds and thousands of complete genomes, like wow. in, in one, in one pass, wow. you know? And like that, that took like eons. <laughs> it took a long time before in a culturing setting. Wow. Yeah. I, again, that's not perfect though. So that's, all this is, you know, sometimes a bit of approximation, but yeah. And the not perfect bit then, that yeah. takes us on to some of the great work you've been doing. Yeah. When we say not, not perfect, what does that mean? Well, you know, I think it's, I think it's just like any other science, right? It's just, but I think everyone appreciates that there's certain things you do in science and they're not always perfect, right? There's some level of, of inaccuracies, right? And that applies to bioinformatics as well, but maybe I think even more, but I think people get overconfident because it comes out of a computer. And so they're like, it's a readout. And they're like, I trust this. And, and maybe it's not, I think it's just because it's, it's a bit of a black box, right? They have a, they don't quite understand what's going on under the hood. So they just trust that what it spit out was the, true. was, is true. 
right? And they might appreciate, okay, yeah, it's the there's some inaccuracies there, but it, it's still like I'll put my trust in this thing, right? And okay. the reality is, is that depending on what you're doing, you know, the inaccuracies can be substantial, right? Yeah. And yeah. this brings us on to some of your recent publications. Yeah, yeah. So and so what, we've been... What did you do there? Yeah, so in our, you know, a lot of what we've been doing is some tool development. I can go back to there in a second too, but is that is we're also sort of comparing approaches, right? Existing approaches. And so what happens in the in the bioinformatics world a bit is, is like I make a tool and then to publish my tool, I have to compare it against existing tools and show that my tool's better. When you say a tool, you're talking about software? Yeah, like a software program, type program thing. And that could be as little as something straightforward and small. It could be like a large, you know, like clicky, yep. like perfect, like glossy thing. But usually it's just some, you know, something you're hacking away on a command line and it, it, it does some function, right? And that's the computer science training on yeah, your side, right? Yes. You're building new software, new tools. And I guess it's software-based engineering almost. It's like programs and systems. That's that's what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. It's I mean, cool. Yeah, real coding. <laughs> you know, like just, yeah. you know diff using different languages depending on what you... Okay. What your balance is, some languages are faster and you, and you need that speed and others are just a bit slower, but they're much easier to program in. So yeah, it's, it's really cool from a, from a programming side yeah. and it's very applied, right? Like, so you're not just, I guess the draw there is that you're, you're making code that will like leads to discoveries. It's kind of yeah. cool, right? Like Super it's cool. like, and all of a sudden it opens up a new world that, yeah. that's just, it's like, it's real discovery. It's the same as like someone being like, oh, I made like PCR or like some other like wet lab technique wow. to do something. It's like, I made a tool and now we can make new discoveries. So, and the tool development then, yeah. do you have in your mind or your group has like a number of areas that really could benefit from innovation and you're working on those, you've got a bit of this, bit of that, or does it just happen? You go, there has to be a better way of doing this. So we're going to do this. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people that develop tools are sort of in certain areas uh, and then new things arise and they say, oh yeah, we, we there's a gap here or or I could do a better job at this, right? Is a typical thing too, maybe yeah. that, that happens. So yeah, so getting back to this idea is I say I make a new tool, I, I compare it to other methods, but there's a bit of a bias in that, right? So you if I make a tool and I compare it to others, there's lots of ways to compare things, right? And, and benchmark them. And so what happens is you'll get, and it's, it's okay. I mean, it's just what happens is that people publish these papers and say, ah, my tool's the best. And then another person comes out and is like, oh, my tool's the best and my tool's the best. And it's not like a linear progression of A is better than B and B is better than C. It's that, well, how do I how do I for sure know that yours was really better or not? Right. And so that's where we've done a bit of work where we've come in as a, what I call a third party where <clears throat> I don't have any skin in the game, say like, I don't have a tool <laughs> that I've actually developed in this area, like in this little, this area, but I want to know which one to use. Right. Cause all of a sudden now it's like, I have 10, 20 different options. Right. And Is that how many there are? Sometimes for wow. different things. Right. So like, it depends on what you're talking about, but anywhere wow. from like two or three, four, five, 10, 12, depending on what we're talking about. And Morgan, and, sorry, are these commercial things? Like, do you have no, to pay for them? No, they're all free tools. Almost all of them are open access, open source software, right? So uh, there is some commercial software out there um, that's being used, but I would say the very bulk of it's all open access and open and open source and freely available. So, I mean, that's nice, right? I yeah. mean, and, it, and it's kind of like you can't, 
you can't get mad at someone because you're not buying it either, right? You're not, you're oh, screw you, Microsoft. It's like, well, these people make these, you know, tools that are the kindness of their hearts. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's their job, but like they, you know, they, they make it freely available. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we end up coming in and it's like, well, we have projects going, right? So we have projects and we need to analyze our data a certain way. And it sort of follows like a, a bit of a pipeline of different stages and steps you're going to do. And you, and you come to a step and you're like, okay, I need to, I need to figure out which one we're going to use, right? right? And so how do you do that? Do you just randomly pick one? Do you just ask your your colleague, which a lot of people do, and then it's like a popularity contest? Or okay. do you do some sort of like a little bit of comparison in-house, right? And some people might do a little comparison and see if what works and what doesn't. Um, just back a step. Yeah. Be- better. What does better mean in the context of bioinformatic tools? Yeah, well, it just it depends what it's doing. Like uh, it depends how you set it up. So you know, more accurate, I guess, but it depends what it's doing. So for example, um, uh, so for example, say the, uh, okay, well, actually I'll use a real example. So one of our early papers was on uh, comparing different, uh, what's called denoising techniques. So remember these short reads we had with the 16S data, right? Um, What I didn't tell you is that even though they're short, sometimes you'll get sequencing error in them. The, the sequencers aren't perfect. Nothing's perfect in biology. I mean, it's just, you know, you sure. go, to, go to physics or math if you want to be perfect. But, <laughs> you know, uh, um, short read has errors. Uh, and so the old school approach was that was just to be like, well, you know what? We know there's errors here. So anything that's like pretty close to each other, say 97% or more, some of those could be errors. So let's just collapse those things into one. And we just accept. And we just accept yeah. that that's what it is. And so we'll just call that a little cluster. We used to call them OT, OTU. OTUs, yeah, or oh. operational taxonomic units, right? Is that 97% just kind of widely accepted? As it a- was at the time, yeah. I mean, I mean, people used other things, but it was it was thought to be sort of similar to a species, right? So you would, on average, maybe you could collapse at the species level and you'd find about that difference. That was the, that's all approximation though, because all bacteria are different. So, so that was the old school sort of method to it. And all of a sudden these new methods came out and said, well, you know what? We can actually like model these errors and use, use some techniques to try to actually correct those reads um, and go back and correct them. Which and, would be better, right? Which would be better because yeah. now instead of, you know, losing that 3% of resolution, yep. Now we get to collapse them, and if we're right, Got it. it's it's an extra three percent we just gain, and it's like people are like, yeah, and then we could get down to like the species level more, right? So it's like it's all about this gain, okay. and so so this started happening, and then there are a few tools came out that that did this, um, and it's like okay, well that's great, and, you know, like everyone's putting their best effort in, into figuring out how to do this, and then so we just wanted to say, okay, how do we you know how do we compare these and and come up with at least a paper that describes them, right? And right. can we suggest something? moving forward. And the typical thing though, it's really annoying is that there's never a clear winner. <laughs> there's not, there's often not a clear winner, but at least we will write the paper and we'll do like a comparison then with like real data sets where we know the truth, like with mock communities or something. And then that'll be our benchmark. And then we'll do the comparisons and, and we'll test them out. And then we'll say, okay, this is, this is what we'll use yep. in my lab going forward. And Maybe you'll want to do the same, or maybe you're, there's something a different aspect to the tools that you want to do. So we we end up doing some of that um, in different ways. And the tools that you've analysed, yeah, I know the answers already. But do they show the same thing 
when they analyze the same community? Yeah, so let's get to, the, I guess, the, the one you're trying to get me to talk about is the, uh, the recent one, which so is... Interesting. Yeah, so the, so the, interesting. The, the more recent one was this really sort of basic thing. So you have this long pipeline of analyzing data, and you actually sort of get to that stage where it's more of a statis uh, statistical test, right? So where you're actually asking... Hey, I have uh, you know I have some healthy people here, and I, I measured their microbiome, and then I have uh, some people here with say Crohn's disease, okay, yep. and I measured their microbiome over here, and I want to know, you know, what bacteria are different between the two, right? What, and statistically different. You remember, you know, statistics, right? Those are those are important terms. We don't want just random. Yep. We, don't we don't want to be by chance. We don't want by chance, right? right. So we have to measure the mean, say that the mean difference, if that's what we're going after, in these amounts of microbes, and we're going to ask, what's different? So it's like a really fundamental, basic question, right? You do all this complex sequencing, mass, you get to the stat you stage. You get the patients, you get the samples. Yeah, you got awesome. all these samples, yep. and then you're like at the stat stage, you're like, statistician, tell me what's, what's, what's different between these two, because I need to know, you know, is it five bugs, and, and what's, the top, what's the top bug that's the most different? Right. It seems like the most straightforward thing Fundamental. in the world, right? So we would do like a old school t-test, right? This is like if you've ever done any statistics, it's like they taught you a t-test, two groups, you know, yep. if it's normalized data, we can calculate, you know, one or two tailed and we do a t-test, right? So that gets much more complex with microbiome data. You can't do t-tests really. You shouldn't be doing them because it's not normalized. I'm not going to get into statistics. But then there's a lot of complexities around the type of data it is. It's not normalized. It's what they call very sparse. So there's a lot of zeros in these tables, right? There's just like the, the tags are, are, are found in some samples but not in others. And so because of that, it creates problems in trying to figure out how do you call something as significant between being in this sample and not? So because of that, there's been a, you know, a pretty huge rise, I would say, in statistical approaches or statistical like frameworks, I guess, for, for spitting out number of differential abundant bacteria, right? Okay. Uh, and so, and again, so this came across her lap and we're like, okay, yeah, we will use this tool now. And then someone else would publish another tool and, and it gets really annoying because, you know, you, you try to publish a paper and a reviewer is like, oh no, you should be using this approach. It's like, well, why are you like, why are you saying that? They're like, well, because this paper said that it was better. And it's like, well, okay, that's their paper. And, and, and we and were to be clear, all, like the field has been spitting out is the wrong word, but we've been publishing and publishing, publishing and concluding. So ev every single microbiome paper has to run one of these tools. Like, okay. I, I can't imagine a paper where they, I mean, there might be a few where they wouldn't, like where you're not doing a two group test or something, but yep. like almost the very 95% of almost all the microbiomes are going to have to do this differential abundance test at some time to say, this is what's different. So what we thought was that, um, you know, some of the tools are just going to be more conserv conserv conservative than others, right? Like, and that, that sort of makes sense depending on their, their, uh, know, their assumptions in the data and things, they're going to take a slightly different look. And then some, you know, maybe all the top ones agree, right? So they all agree the top five are really different. And then some tools are going to maybe just spit out a whole bunch more stuff, but maybe some of those are going to be maybe not real. Like it's just not a big difference in effect size. And then others would be very conservative. That's what we sort of thought. We would just be like, okay, let's, well, let's just characterize that. Let's just do that. And actually it was 
<laughs> we uh, naively thought we would just do this in a day. So we uh, just like classic science. So I was like, this, let's do this. This would be fun. Like we called it like a hackathon where we're like, we'll come right. in. We'll get, I think we get some sushi that day. We all sat in a room like the size of honestly, probably this studio yeah. around a table that was like about three times the size. Actually, there's a, there's a picture on Twitter. Yeah. There's a picture on Twitter. And, um, and the idea was like, yeah, let's do a hackathon and every person will take a tool and then we'll gather data sets and then you run this tool and that data set, I'll run this tool. So we'll have yeah. like a little mini pipeline of everyone does their tool and we'll, we'll yeah. get this done. Right. <laughs> and yeah, so that, that so the day passed, and the day we... passed. Uh, <laughs> and then we realized, yeah, we sort of like chewed off more than we could handle. Then it turned <laughs> into like, oh yeah, we should give this to like this undergraduate, uh, student, like honor student and let them chew on it for a while. So they chewed on it for a while and then someone else did some stuff for a while and then it was like three years later, finally, before we like, <laughs> and it turned into like a beast. Like it went from like a little, like, yeah, yeah, we'll just sort of like compare them to be like, we went just full on. Right. So we end up getting, uh, you know, 38 different data sets. Wow. A 10,000 ish samples across everything from human microbiome wow. to soil, to water, to host associated, like in other organisms and, wow. and, a, and a whole bunch of tools, um, like eight sort of different tools, but then you can run them slightly different. So we tested some of those variations and we just threw them at all these different data sets, right? And these are, these are real data sets where there was two groups. Like they had said, okay, you know, this group had uh, C. difficile infections. This yeah. one didn't, right? Or in ocean, it's like, this is like salt water at a certain depth. And then it's like at 20 meters or something, right? Got so, it. got it. So, you know, just real, real data, real groups. And we just said, you know, like, let's, let's see how bad, like, like, let's see how different they are. And it was, yeah, it was just scary. It was just striking. Yeah. Right. So you, you know, the data I showed basically shows that you have cases for a particular data set where, you know, we were talking about these ASVs, right? These hundred percent sequences um, that are like in theory from a single organism. Then, you know, you would, some tools would find like 50 of these things. And then another tool would find like 2,000 of these things. Wow. Or like in how some is, of the data sets, in some of the tools, there, some of the data sets, there was like zero, like nothing different. Like you're like, that's a negative result. And other tools are like, oh, there's like 200 things different here. And then you're like, what? And then it was even worse because it wasn't just that the tools that were like spinning out a lot of stuff was just always spinning out in a consistent fashion. It was... It, it just varied by the data set. And then also even when you looked at like how well they overlapped, if you just took that, that intersection, you know, like the little part of the, of the uh, overlapping circles, if you think about it, that, that, was, that was really small, right? And it's just like, so then you're like, well, well that's really problematic, right? <laughs> Indeed. So no wonder like when you, run, when you do your uh, C. difficile uh, you know, project, and then someone else does a different CVDFSL project. If you ran two different statistical methods, even if you did everything else the same, yeah. everything else the same, which is unlikely anyway, but say you just collected the same exactly way, yep. you did the same sequencing, you did the same, all these other bioinformatic steps the same way, and the only thing you did different at the very end was this test, you'd get widely different answers, which is like fundamental answers about yeah. what people report on. They're like, these are the things that are actually yeah. different. 
these are the differences in the microbiome yeah. between this group and this group. Yeah. And therefore and those, these bugs might be bad and these bugs yeah. might be good. And then that's the the foundation of like how, like next step forward, it's like, oh, well, these are our top candidates. Let's, our drugs. Yeah, these yeah. are our drugs. These are like what we're going to try to kill or this is what we're going to focus on and following up and yeah. describing more. And then all of a sudden you're like, realize, oh, like. Uh-oh. Yeah, it, it might not be. Right. If, if I, you know, if. Right. If, if, if Sally chose a different tool. Yep we would have got different results. So so when I heard you and watched you present this, I was just thinking, goodness gracious, <laughs> what does this mean? Yeah. All these studies that I've read and I've gone, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with that. Actually, if they'd chosen a different statistical method or a different sort of tool, yeah. it might have shown something different. Yeah. So what does that mean for all the microbiome research that we've conducted to date and that we've commented on and that we accept as being true? Yeah. What does it mean? Well, you know, if we're talking about specific microbes, like if we're saying these these are the key bacteria, unless it's been shown by multiple studies or in multiple different ways, you know, yeah. a, a single study is not going to cut it, right? Yeah, so, I mean, you, you have to really, yeah. you can't hang your coat on yeah. on that, right? So you need some consensus over different projects to hope that, you know, if it's the same number one bacteria, and it's across studies. Well, it's like okay. Well, then obviously that's that's out competing all the noise yeah. of what's going on underneath here. Right? So what you're saying is, if the same thing, whatever that thing is, whether it's increased abundance of strain X versus control, we can talk about controls. Yeah. Um, if it's been replicated across different studies with different tools, then that's sounding like quite a strong, robust finding, right? Yeah. But if it's only been done once. Then yeah. there's a caution there, right? Absolutely. Okay. So, but that, that that applies for anything, anyway, because there there's could be other biases that lead to sure. these studies, right? But yeah, absolutely. Just for this one thing, and that doesn't. So differential blends is used in almost every paper, but it's not the only thing that people do, right? So like a lot of sure. ways to characterize microbiome or if there's differences doesn't rely on that differential abundance, sure. right? You can talk about alpha diversity, like the number of species that are different. Yeah, that's not going to be affected by. Got that, that specific problem. Okay. Even like broad, like differences in communities to say, well, this community looks more similar to this community. That doesn't necessarily rely on those differential abundance things. Understood. But yeah, but if you get to that point in that paper and you're reading about, oh, these are, you know, the things that were different, um, that, that could be problematic. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's so super scary. What do we do about it? Yeah. You know. Or rather, what are you doing with your team? Yeah, so for right now, the the sort of I think the band aid solution is is for us is just to be more transparent when we're reporting, sure. you know, on it. So instead of just picking a method and running with it, which is simple and nice, uh, <laughs> is to sort of run a few different tools and and report on those essentially. So and not not run a whole bunch of tools and then pick our favorites, you know, because we don't want to do that either. We don't want to run all the tools and be like, yeah, I really like the output of this one the best because it has the most things or the things that I've heard about, right? We don't want to get into that. That's like, so that's like pee hacking. Yes, what are we going to do about it? What? Oh, that's yes. right. That's what, what are we going to do about it, man? Oh, what are we going to do about it? How are you going to save, yeah. save us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but seriously, you're doing some cool stuff. So Yeah, yeah. so we're, yeah, right now the Band-Aid solution is just literally just, you know, try to report on a, a few different methods and, and be transparent about it, right? To say, look, yeah, we found these things, but that was only detected by this one tool and these other two tools didn't find them. So maybe it's a bit with a grain of salt, but still we can write a paper about it, describe it 
and just be transparent about it. And so we're not just saying, yeah, this is it. Like we, we all have to agree this is what's going after. It's right. more like this is what we think could be really different here. But being a bit more transparent about it, I think that's better for readers, right? Like for people that are looking at our papers down the road as opposed to being like, you know, because they publish their similar study was going to happen. They're going to read my paper and they're going to go, oh, but we didn't find this. Like I didn't find that species different. And yeah. it's like, well, that's okay. <laughs> you know, we found something else. And it's like instead of them being like, oh, maybe there's something wrong with my data, it's just because the, the tools are different, right? Can they use like the same tool and see if they find the same thing? Is that something that people can do? Or yeah, is it they too could. Cost prohibitive. No, they. Oh no, that's fine. They could run the same the same exact pipeline and see if 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 that works. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of. I think it, it shone a light on it and made people. Uh, the whole purpose of it is just to shine light on it so people appreciate that these things aren't set in stone yeah. and that there's no one perfect approach either, right? right. So you can't, you can't come in and say, no, you have to use this tool. This is the best because we right. didn't find a best tool. Right. We found some that are probably better than others, but we didn't say, you know, this is what you have to use. And that's what sort of irked me too. So now it's like a better appreciation, I hope, that people can point to our paper and say, well, look, this is, yeah. this is where we're at. Yeah. And we don't have a solution at this point. Maybe we build down a road. Yeah. You know, I'm not a statistician per se. So, you know, it's kind of throwing it back to people that are more people that create these types of tools. Say, hey, how can we make this better? How can we maybe combine right. things and, and improve yeah. on it? And that's, 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 that's a take home there. So if Craig Venter woke up tomorrow and said, look, this, this tool pipeline thing is just, it's really annoying me. And, and I'm an entrepreneur with lots of money and I'm going to speak to Morgan. <laughs> He's going to help me fix it. Could, could you, in theory, with all the various different capability and team, build something that is better? Could we do it? Uh, oh, I'm sure... We, as in like, we, yes, we could. Yeah, I mean, I th with money and, and resources. It's not, that specific area is not really my specialty. Got it. Okay, that, so I I wouldn't want to necessarily it. do that. I mean, I, I have some ideas about how we could do it, but I'm not really a statistician. It's a yep. bit outside of my realm just yep. a little bit. But I, I know people that, yeah, they should get money to, to so help to solve this. Yeah. And I would support that 100%. So like, yep. let's... Let's like, get Craig. Yeah, let's get somebody. <laughs> let's get money to these people that know how to solve this. I know they're like I know who they are, yeah. and then like come up with a better approach, right? Right. That it's never going to be perfect, but like at least something that seems to yeah, maybe to cover the bases a bit better. I hear you. Yeah. So you're doing some innovative work in the bioinformatics side. Yeah. What kind of cool things are you doing? Yeah. So, um, so my claim to fame, I guess, uh, for bioinformatic tools, you know, I talked about Island Viewer earlier in my PhD days, but what really what sort of launched myself in my postdoc and into my PI work was this tool called PyCrust. Um, and so it, it made sort of a, a huge splash on, in the microbiome field, and it's been used really heavily in the microbiome field. And that's because it was, it was a, new, a new approach that produced, you know, new new results. So if you remember when we were talking about 16S data, right? Yes. And it gives you taxa. Yes. And then metagenomics gives you the taxa that are there, but also functions, right? And so you're like, well, yeah, you need to spend the extra money to get this, this functional information, which is thought it'd be like, that's really relevant, right? It's really important. Right? Because otherwise, if I do 16S study, all I'm going to do is get these reports of these different bacteria. And I'm going to say, well, I kind of know that 
you know, these types of bacteria do these things, right? Maybe I know that some of them produce butyrate and that's really important in the gut. Or maybe some of them I know are spore forming and so they do X. And so you would see this a lot in papers where people sort of like, you know, start to interpret their data and be like, so maybe this community is doing more of this, right? And I thought at the time um, that, well, we should be able to do a better job of this because we have all these reference genomes, right? So if I know for sure that this type of bug is in my sample and I already have its genome. Why can't I actually like use that information to make a better prediction of what, of what those functions would look like? Not just this hand wavy thing where I'm sort of like saying, yeah, these things do this, like really crunch it down and take their numbers of different genes, put it all together and say, this is what the functional, um, profile would look like. Right. Right. So that was, um, sort of really powerful now because you could take your 16S data and you could get this functional sort of prediction, which, you know, it's like, well, that's great because I, I didn't have to pay any money for this, right? Like right. I just I just got this for free right. all of a sudden. And that wasn't possible before. No, yeah. no. And so that was, um, so that was sort of a, a, a big deal and was sort of, you know, a, a group effort from a few different labs and it, it sort of all came together in the end and, um, you know, it wasn't just sort of my project, I sort of led it um, uh, uh, with Jesse Zanveld and then a few different PIs were on as well, like a, some big names in the, in the field, like Rob Knight and, and Curtis Huttenhauer and then my PI at the time, Rob Biko. Um, so it kind of came out and made a huge splash because now, you know, we're talking about, you know, all these 16S studies, you know, people could, people could do these types of predictions. And we did a lot of validation on it at the time. So people show could get loads more value for money from 16S. Yeah. yeah. So now you have this whole wow. new thing and now you can just pump out, you know, yeah. actual functional profiles and it just opens up this whole new, whole new world. Wow. Yeah. So it, because of that, it got then widely used, um, you know, it, and it's, it still is. It's like up to, it's like it's been cited thousands of times, right? So it's 6,000 times or something. So it's used a ton. And that was back in 2013. Um, and then we sort of made PyCrust 2 in, in 2020. And that was led by my PhD student. We sort of took it on and then and, and, and proved in, in various ways uh, and then and, and put out PyCrust 2. So that had a huge impact on field, which is really nice. We talk about like these tools, you know, you make tools and they're used. It's really satisfying when, <clears throat> you know, others get something out of it because you have a, a wider impact on the field. Um, but it wasn't without controversy. So, uh, there's a lot of high crust haters out there. <laughs> so, um, and, and that's, okay. and that's okay. Why are they hating? Well, because, um, because, you know, we talked about, uh, we talked about this level of strain variability, right? We just talked about this, about the, you know, how sequences at hundred percent similarity, their genomes can be quite different, right? Like E. coli, right? So we, you know, because of horizontal gene transfer and things, it can be quite different. And so their idea is like, well, that's, that's crazy. You're going to make predictions only on, say, 16S data. But you, there, we know that there's a lot of variability within those genomes that you can't, you can't predict. There's just no way to do it because it's, there's just not enough information. And so there was, there was a lot of pushback. And I think it was mostly like they didn't think that I knew or that we didn't know that that existed, like, which I, I did. Like, I actually spent my PhD on genomic islands. Like, I literally stayed, studied, like, strain level differentiation. Um, 
And so that got a pushback from the people who are like, well, that must be just rubbish then. Like that must be a tool that's just not useful because we know there's too many differences. And and the truth is it's probably somewhere in between a bit where, it, well, I wouldn't say it's rubbish at all. Like it's a prediction, right? It's a prediction of what we think would be there. Uh, and then it depends a lot on your uh, community that you're studying, right? So we validated a lot on the human microbiome. And again, because we have pretty good reference genomes, it works fairly well because we have a whole database of these things. Right. If you try to use it in, you know, ocean or these crazy sediments underneath the ocean where we don't have the bacteria reference genomes, yeah, it does. It it doesn't do well, right? So that that's part of it. Um, but yeah, so there was there's always been a bit of a pushback there, but it's I think people that know and understand the tool take it as what it is. And so as long as you're using it in an appropriate way, and then you're you're sort of um, not overstating, I think, is, is the biggest problem. Like when you, you know, report on these different functions, you're not like, okay, so we made pie crust predictions. So that means you got to like use a certain particular mouthwash because I don't know, something crazy, like just some like crazy clinical aspect to it. It's like, well, that's like, like that's a lot of inference. That's a lot of prediction that right. you just put on top of it. Right. right so it right. gets, it gets hyped up too much. So you just have to you just have to manage your expectations, you know? It's like it's a, it's just like anything else. It's a hypothesis, and then you would then validate that with either real metagenomics down the road or some other way to to look into those functions. Got it. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Like, it's a quick look-see that adds value. Yes. And it gives you some idea, noting, of course, that there might be some strain-level variability that could be important. Absolutely. So when people were pushing back and hating, what were they doing? Writing letters and publications and... No, not not to that level. Uh, only, I think there was only, like, maybe eventually one paper that did a... that did, like, a, a another analysis of, of accuracy f from... Uh, of our tool and sort right. of showed that, hey, maybe it didn't perform as well... Right. As what we said, and classic thing, it comes down to sort of how you look at this yeah. this problem, right? Um, but uh, yeah, and, and not like not like direct hate, but like you know, you know, it's people like naysayers on high, on on Twitter sometimes. It just you know, ah, Twitter, yeah. you know. But I mean, that's not that's not a big deal. It's kind of like it's most of the time it's in good nature, and a few people like at like poster sessions, like oh, you made like pie crust, blah blah, and. Um, you know, but it's not like my life. Like, I'm not going to die on the sword of pie crust, right? I'm just like, you know, like, it's okay. You don't like it. It's, you don't have to use it, right? right? Like, that's okay. Right. Uh, well, that that makes all right. Sense. Yeah. One of my, one of my, uh, a close colleague of mine, we, we do right. workshops together. And, and uh, he's, he's the only other person that said something that really hurt me deep. He, he compared me to Heisenberg with the atomic bomb. He's like, and I'm like, he's like, you're like Heisenberg. And I was like, that's not very nice, right? Like, yeah, he didn't mean it from a nice way. Yeah. Like he was joking, of course. Yeah. Uh, it's like not from the famous way, obviously. A little it's bit like, different. It's, it's, right? um, he's not comparing like not famously. I'm not comparing myself to Heisenberg, just to be clear. I'm not. I'm not egotistical, but like he meant like from a, oh, you unleashed something that could be like mismanagedly used by the community. And uh, I was like, ah, yeah. that's really mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So that that was a big splash, and and it's been sort of yeah. um, sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. And are you working on some other super innovative stuff right now that yeah. you can share? Yeah, so... Um, you were mentioning Jarvis yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So these tools sort of um, almost build upon a bit of what PyCrust gets at is this, uh, you know, how PyCrust predicts functions from these organisms. So obviously species of bacteria have genes. And so what happens right now is we tend to study often 
you know, different, we measure different types of bugs and we compare the composition of those bugs and then we compare their, their functions. And we sort of do this like here and here, and we sort of treat them almost as two different analyses. And then we say, oh yeah, so this species is, is more in this. And then we also see like these pathways, these microbial pathways are also increased over here. And then you sort of try to connect them at the end a bit, but it's not like linked like right. like they should be right? right because they're literally in those genomes and so this always this has bugged me for a long time uh and so you can get that information out of pie crust but you can also get out of like if you have real metagenomic data you, you can get that out of the data as well right you have because you you made these assemblies and you got this information so um i wasn't really satisfied with with how we interpret that data right so if we look at particular functions which i'm really interested in you know, why can't we just link it back to the tax and say, well, you know, what's driving these changes that we're, that we're observing, right? Because there's a big difference if you think about it at a community level. Um, so if, if, if one bug starts growing a lot, all those genes and pathways linked to it are going to increase too. But you Makes don't sense. know which one, which one it is, right? Some of them could be sort of like, passengers, like passenger genes that because it's just in the genome, it, it also increases. Or it could be because there's this particular pathway or gene that does something really crucial, right? And that actually led to the increase of it, right? And that's what we're going after. We're going after the things that are sort of driving that increase in those bacteria, right? We want to go after that sort of selection level, right? The, that there's selection on a particular gene. And right now, it's just like, well, you're just comparing them all together, and that's not very satisfying. So to do that, we sort of have to look at, you know, how the bacteria change and then how the function changes. And now you can imagine, so instead of just this one gene and this one bacteria, okay, what if like 10 bacteria all were increased in like whatever you want to compare, say Crohn's disease? Okay. And they and, all had a particular function. And they all had, they all share a particular function, Yeah. right? Yep. Now all of a sudden it's like, and those and those bacteria aren't super related, right? So they're not just like all the same strains. It's like, but they all have this common pathway, right? They're all they all have say butyrate production of, and then you're like, oh well, then that's way more powerful than just saying, well, all these other things are increased, right? Okay. So it's going after that sort of level so that we can get more out of the data again. We're getting more context and more information out of the data so we can say, okay, now. Yeah. These are, are really top candidates for functions. Um, and so, yeah, I wasn't really satisfied with sort of how we were doing that for the longest time. And this has been on my radar forever. And of course, it just takes a while to sort of get to it. But yeah, so now we sort of finally a, a bunch of tools or I guess are being released actually all probably within the six, next six months or so where we're comparing and using that information. So what we call sort of taxa functional linkages to try to get at this at this uh, at this information, and so there's a few different tools out there. So one is is Jarvis. So Jarvis is just another RPKM something something. Oh, it, that's visual, what it stands for. Visualizer. Right? It wasn't just named after Jarvis and Iron Man. No, I mean no. it really was, but I mean, you know you have to sort of link an acronym to something. Uh, so yeah, my uh, yeah research associate in my lab called uh, Duani. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, uh, you know, named it and has made it. And so that's just a visualizer and how we can now finally like just visualize and browse the data, which is really important for like non-biophematicians even, right? Like how do you load this up in front of you so you can like say, hey, 
this pathway is found in this bacteria and it's actually found in this proportion of our samples, right? right? And so you, you can just see it in front of you and you can explore the data. And that's, that's really important for often like the scientists that are coming at it from a more clinical or yep. uh, scientific approach that don't have the computer skills to really hash this out in any other way. Cause it's just, it's, it's complex data and it's hard to visualize. So Jarvis does that for you using sort of what we call Sankey diagrams, but it creates these nice ribbons. And so it, it lets you explore the data. And I, th I think it's quite useful for showing interpretive vid or figures and papers, but also exploring the data. So I think that's pretty cool and much better than sort of what existed before. Um, and was there a lot of coding involved in building Jarvis or am I sort of No, Jarvis isn't wrong? too bad. It's um, it, it basically just sits on, it sits on top of a lot of other tools. It's, at its core, there's nothing super fundamental there. It's mostly just visualization. Okay. And I, I, I sound like I'm doing a disservice to it because I shouldn't just say it's just a visualization, but it's a, you know, it's it's not a, yeah, no, it, it's a good piece of work, <laughs> but it's, it's focused on the visualization part, right? Not Understood. some fundamental like algorithm underneath yeah. the hood. As an aside, is it difficult to attract top, top coding talent because you're competing with the likes of, you know, the huge tech companies who are trying to swallow up as many developers and coders as they can? Um, or is it that coders who are working in bioinformatics and microbiomes, they need to have some training in microbes to be really effective? Yeah, but I would say a bit of all those things. Um, uh, so it's still quite hard to find people with a mixed background, right? Like, yeah. like a true bioinformatics background. We're still sort of stuck a lot with people coming in from the, what I would say the life sciences, biology sort of angle, right? Where they've never done coding or you get computer scientists yep. that like you have to tell them what DNA is, right? So we're, it's amazing yep. because I did this like ages ago. But even then, it wasn't an integrated program. I just sort of took both at the just same both. time. And yeah. we're in a lot of places, it's still like that where it's, it's still sort of separate. And it's left to the student to sort of be like, oh, yeah, like, hey, I'm going to do a microbiology degree. And I'm kind of interested in coding. So maybe I'll just take this as my elective. Like not too many people take, you know, intro to computer science or programming for their elective, right? So sure. that that makes a, a bit of a restriction there. And then you're left with training them. I should, I should say that there is some places that are building better bioinformatic training programs. And it's actually something we're looking at Dalhousie uh, University quite a bit more too. Specific and, and, for this. Right? Yeah, specific. Yeah. And other places have done it too, just with different levels of satisfaction, I think. But still, just it's not a straightforward approach. Um, so there's this bit of a bottleneck in, in, in those people. And then if they're computer scientists you know, they probably have the skill set to actually like do the programming really well, right? Um, and you can sort of teach them maybe enough biology to get them by so that they can do the coding really well. But like you said, a lot of times they'll get snapped up by, you know, they can make, right. you know, double the salary, right. you know, in as a computer programmer, yeah. right? So you sort yeah. of like, <laughs> you're sort of appealing to it's their, tough. yeah, yeah. So that that's really, really hard. Tough. And so what ends up being that we end up often taking more the, for me anyway, a lot of time, but it, it varies more the you know, life sciences, biology people and, and teaching them some coding to sort of, sort of do that. But it, it varies across the board depending on your lab. Yeah. What about AI and machine learning? How does that fit into everything we've talked about? Because you're talking about huge amounts of data yeah. and trying to compare complex data sets. Yeah, I so mean, how are the machines helping us? Yeah, machine learning is huge now. I mean, it's, it's really everywhere, right? I mean, I think 
AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning, we think of it as this still sort of novel thing, but the reality now is it's been around for quite a while, and it's in our everyday life, right? Like, it's, it's literally how almost anything that you interact with is, is driving it, right? Like, you, you watch a Netflix show, and it's, it's, it starts suggesting new things. That's, that's machine learning. You start typing in, in Google, and then there's a type ahead of, think of, of, it, of it thinks of what you should type ahead. That's still machine learning, right? Um, you know, self-driving cars, machine learning. Like, right. you know, anything that's taking a lot of data and trying to make a prediction on what you should do next, <laughs> that, that's machine learning. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and then that feeds into, yeah, it feeds into biology where we have a lot of data, right? And it's not just like, so my previous example where we had, you know, you know, hey, what bugs are the difference between our two groups, right? That that those tests are run by saying you look at one bug, bug X, and you say there's this much of it here and this much of it here, and it varies in the different samples, right? And then we go to our next bug and then we do that same comparison. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't infer anything about interactions between the microbes. It doesn't say, well, What's different? Well, maybe it's that it's like three of these things are all increased in this, in a sample, and not in this. But it's an all or nothing thing. Or maybe two are increased and one's decreased, right? And that's like a signature, but it doesn't, that requires some interactions. It requires like interactions between the microbes and, and to make that prediction, right? Is that, is that, is that clear at all? Like, do it you know what I mean? Sense. Yeah. yeah. And have we, has machine learning or AI and the AI thing I still find a little bit confusing, but has it actually delivered anything big in the microbiome space? Yeah. Well, what's typically used for right now is, is doing what, and it's quite nice because people like this, especially like I think clinicians like this is that this classic sort of accuracy prediction or, you know, Clinicians are actually taught a lot about, you know, area under the curves of, of different diagnostic tests. This is actually taught to them, you know, in medical school usually where you have, you know, recall and specificity or sensitivity, specificity, depending on who you talk about. Like, but if you think about a diagnostic, right, you have a trade-off between, you know, how many things it gets right and how many it's going to like miss, right? Or it's like a COVID test, right? Do you want it to, if if you have it, do you want it to be really precise and never say that you don't have it, like by chance? Or is it okay to let a few more people slip through that did have COVID because for that, for that trade-off? So there's always a trade-off between precision and recall in any diagnostic test. And so machine learning tools will spit this out for you too. So it takes complex data and, and it's, it's sort of simple. It's a bit of a black box too, but it's, it's sort of simple in that you let the data just, you just hand it the data and you say, based on this data and these labels, build a model for me. And it builds a little black box model and it looks at it and it compares them and says, okay, I know what the model is. Give me new data and I'm going to tell you which one it belongs to, right? It says I'm going to be in group A or big, big group B. And then I can even calculate this area into the curve diagnostic thing, right? And you're thinking, well, that sounds great because now if I take my, you know, my data set and I say, hey, I can take your poot sample, I can sequence it, I can do all this stuff, I'll put it into my machine learning model and I can tell you with 94% accuracy whether you have Crohn's disease or not or whether you're going to respond to treatment Are or not. Are we there yet with Crohn's? 
Because that's big. No. So like anything else, bioinformatics isn't perfect. <laughs> and machine learning. Um, so so machine learning, you know, is, is getting more widely used because of this, you know, because of this aspect. And it's, it's thought to be more intelligent. But there's, there's still things that aren't quite perfect with it either, right? There's the classic things, what's called overfitting, or you're not testing and validating properly. So it's easy, not easy, but it's quite easy sometimes to build a classifier that seems really accurate, but it's too tailored to the data that you trained it on, right? And then all of a sudden you try to apply that model now to a different data set, and it'll just, it does awful, Oh, does really awful. Okay. So because of that, you know, there's there's different guidelines almost or, or ways to go about this um, to try it. But again, it's not perfect. And so we end up, um, you know, sort of reporting things sometimes that seem really accurate, but in reality, maybe they don't work so well in other data sets. And that's not, I'm making it sort of sound like the fault of the user, like the person purposely doing it. But it's also because the data sets are kind of noisy, right? Like we're, we know that the data was collected in a different way. Um, different tools were maybe used on it, bioinformatics right. or sequencing approaches. Right. And so that leads to problems as well with the classifier. But there has been some nice studies out there where people have done this uh, and compared it across papers and really done a more robust thing to say, is there a signature or not? And so there was a nice, uh, I think he was talking about yesterday, uh, coming out of Nicholas Sagata's group sort of comparing yeah. a bunch of different colorectal cancer papers and data sets and basically saying, hey, that's great. Can we build different models on the different, on the different data sets and show if it really works across? And so they show that you could with colorectal cancer, it really worked quite well, even across data sets. So that's, that's powerful, right? And then with some other data sets, and, and I guess, it, sorry, not the, so well. The, the forward-looking view then on that colorectal cancer piece, would it be that a sequence profile might be more predictive than some of the other tools that we've got, or will it sit alongside it? What do you think? Yeah, so if, if we look about more futuristic, right, so then you have to ask, okay, well, how, how clinically relevant is that, right? How relevant is it if, if you have colorectal cancer that you can do this machine learning and maybe, say, right. spit out that you have cancer with 80% accuracy. Is, I, don't, I don't know how useful that is compared to the yeah, existing approach yeah. of saying you have colorectal cancer, right? Right. So I think a lot of clinicians will go, that's great, but I don't, I don't need that. Like, I don't really need that. I mean, that's cool yep. scientifically, but they're like, uh, no, I have a whole system for diagnosing yeah, yeah. and determining and, and collecting biopsies, and then it tells me for sure you have right. colorectal cancer right. as opposed to some crazy pipeline, <laughs> and, it, and it may not work, right? Yeah. So right. what exactly. we're after there, though, is like, okay, could we use it like – how much ahead of time? Yeah. Like when does it form? How how early, right? Because yeah. you're left with, say, colorectal cancer being diagnosed, but imagine now those same bugs are there a month before. Okay. Six months before. Five, I, I think five years before. Five years before. Yeah. I don't I don't know. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't know for sure how long that timeline is. So yeah. then that that's really cool. Like whether it can be used quite ahead of time. And then the other big deal now is it's not it's not just about predicting the disease. It's about personalized medicine, precision medicine, right? So it's not just about like, okay, that's great, you have colorectal cancer, but can you start to formulate different communities based on how they respond to a certain treatment or yeah. not? Right. So that's those are the those are the two biggies. Diagnostics ahead of time 
and like precision sort of medicine approaches for, for yeah. predicting treatment outcomes for, for that, for that, yeah. for that area. And so that's, we're sort of looking at that a lot in oral microbiome actually right now too. So we're looking at oral microbiome and looking at large data sets and trying to get a handle on why they're oral microbiome because it's a lot nicer to collect, even though someone said it wasn't. Someone said yesterday at the conference, uh, yeah. it was much harder to collect saliva than stool. Yeah. I, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. I mean, I, th I know had, what they were saying as well, right? Uh, they were saying it that, you know, like, well, they, it, they, they, they find it hard for them to get enough saliva to spit. And I'm, I don't know how much they were collecting. Like maybe they're collecting like a crazy, a cup, yeah. Uh, yeah, like a crazy amount and people are nervous and they get dry right. mouth. Like right. I understand that, like, but you don't need that much saliva. So that, right. I mean, I think more people are much more willing to spit in a tube as opposed yep. to like, Hey, we're going to collect some of your poop. Do you mind scooping it? Like yeah. um, people get stage fright as well with the back passage stuff. Well, yeah. They, they and like, they definitely do. Yeah. And like, sure. you also then have to sort of be in the clinic, right. Or like poop on demand. Like that doesn't work for nope. most people. So <laughs> as opposed to like now, okay, we're going to collect your saliva sample. Yeah. Oh, Hey, right now I'm going to collect your poop sample. Well, I don't have to poo. Oh, well, yeah. Well, okay. Next hour you're going to have to collect it. So, you know, I mean, that does, I think, you know, there's an invasive thing, but right. So the idea is like, hey, are some of the microbes present in the oral cavity? Uh, and the other thing we're looking at now is blood too, like whether circulating microbes oh, wow. in the blood could be could be detectable, especially wow. for things like tumors and cancer, right? So if we think about microbes in tumors, wow. then those have to get there somehow, which means they likely got there through circulation in the blood, right? But we don't know for sure how they get there. So they're probably coming from oral. The blood's supposed to be sterile. Blood to tumor or like wow. gut, blood, tumor, right? Wow. I mean, those are the two major obvious approaches for, for sorry, for um, like tumors that are actually like not from the environment side. So like prostate, breast cancer, things like yep. that. I mean, if we're talking about lung cancer, obviously they could just come directly through yep. like the air that we're exposed to, right? Um but yeah, yeah, so... This is incredible. Yeah. Because blood was supposed to be a sterile thing at medical school. It's obviously yeah. not, right? Yeah, no, and so that's that's really interesting too. And so um, it, it mostly is, right? We're, we're not talking like, it's not like stool in your veins here. We're not like that much <laughs> mi much microbes. Uh, but a few people have shown that, yeah, you can detect it. And at least one paper showed that like, it seems to be quite linked to, to tumors. But... It's also a hard thing to do, right? Because we're talking about very rare microbes. And now we have this problem with background noise right. uh, coming from different angles. And so, again, it's hard to be sure of, like, what you're reporting there right. is really there. Or is it some now low-level thing that's popping up because it was in your right. sequencing instrument or something? <clears throat> so if we kind of wrap yeah. all of this together yes. then into the, <laughs> into the future. Yeah the AI, the machine learning, the bioinformatics tools, the genomic toolkit, let's just say someone innovates in the sequencing, what could it look like for us? Five years, 10 years, what do you hope? Yeah, I think five years, we're sort of still doing a lot of what we're doing now, but better still, right? That we're, we're getting much better pictures of, of where the microbes are at. Um, we can pick them out better. Like we can pick out the top tax or those top functions a lot better. So we're getting better candidates. And then, you know, the next stage after that, of course, is the other, what I call the other side, which I don't do as much is like, 
how do we then take that information and then start to apply it, right? Like how do we then, you know, grow those bugs and put them together in a similar right. community and give it in a pill? Right. Or how do we say, okay, it's this function, so we should, you know, try to make that metabolite as a drug? Or, hey, it's actually a bad bacteria, we should formulate an antibiotic for it. Something along those lines, right, which is the applied side to it. It's like I've been only working on – I work mostly on the sort of the first part, <laughs> I guess, right? And so that's that's the more exciting part, right? That's the application of the technology almost to it. Um, and then I think it'll – I think it, we're going to find out. I think we're going to see where rubber meets the road, where we're going to finally find out. I think up to this point, it's been a lot of celebration and a lot of – Microbiome is everywhere's, and then we're going to find out really what applications it can be used in quite well, and where others it's like, well, Not you know, so maybe we're a bit overzealous there. Maybe it was a bit oversold, or maybe it just doesn't. It's not right. that useful for this particular disease. Right. Interesting scientifically, right. but not not to the point of not actionable, fundamental. not yeah. fundamental. And then, and that's okay. I think as you know, as long as we get some for sure some applications of it, then we're for sure. We're all set. I made a note to talk about FMT and gene transfer. And sure. I suppose some application could be FMT, IMT. Sure. Uh, what what we see now is, well, the evolution of FMT was C. diff. This is kind of interesting. Okay, this really works. Yep. And then it was like ulcerative colitis. Okay, this is kind of interesting. Okay, this looks like it could really work, but yep. we're not 100% sure. And we're seeing a similar story in a lot of other areas. We're also seeing FMT, IMT being given for everything, sometimes in the do-it-yourself type yeah. fashion, which is very, very bad. I mean, you wouldn't, you know, someone says you need a blood transfusion, you wouldn't go, all right, okay, I'll just, you know, yeah. just do that in the kitchen, you know. Yeah. No, you wouldn't. But, so, you know, I mean, uh, to push back against that a little bit, it depends on how sort of your situation, I think. I mean, people get pretty desperate, and it, depending on how, how accessible an FMT is, yep. you know, I think I think people sort of, I mean, I, I, I don't totally think we agree. can just write them all all off as as, as cookie completely. Like just oh, I don't because think I think people are crazy. Sorry, just to be really clear, I don't think they're crazy at all. Yeah. I think they're they're desperate. Yeah, and we as industry academia, we have to find a way to help these people. Absolutely, in a yep. safe and effective way. And that that's why I started the company and I run. I became aware of DIY FMT. Yeah, just thought, what? Yeah. There has to be a better way than this. Absolutely. You know? um, so no, I, I I don't think they're they're crazy at all. I think they're just super super desperate and and they want they need to try something. You know. Yeah. If they're staring at a colectomy, or you're you're sitting right? on a toilet like six hours oh. a day, like wouldn't you try it? Yeah, but would I do it myself? Oh, I don't think so. I think I'd find a way to get it done properly. What if you couldn't in your country? What if you couldn't get it done? It's a very difficult question philosophically, isn't it? I bet you'd try it. I mm. bet you like you would you would try it because you're 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 educated and you know you would you'd yeah. be a bit weary. Like you're not gonna just take poo off the street here, but right. like right. I don't know. I mean I know I know really I know a person No I, one's actually asked me that by the way. And no? I, no, and I've been working in this field trying to push forward FMT for seven yeah. years. Would I do it myself? I'm acutely aware of what the risks are because of my training and because of what I do with enterobiotics. So I'd have to really think about it in the context of everything else. Uh, it's very, you're right. It's very easy for us to say, well, just don't do that. Well, I think you'd have to be in the mindset too of understanding. Like it's hard to put yourself in the mindset of 
yeah. that situation, right? To be tied to a toilet, yeah. accidents yeah. where you're like literally can't leave your house yeah. much and you're losing weight. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine. For sure. And then no one can help you. Like you've been through For sure. sort of a, a few rounds of different things. I'm not, I'm, and I'm not For suggesting sure. people go run out and do this, right? I'm just saying, yeah. you know, people in situations and then yeah. you're reading about FMTs and you're like, well, it seems to really work. And it's like, yeah people are looking for a sort of the, you know, yeah. a miracle cure almost. And like, maybe this will offer it. I mean, I know, I know a colleague and you're, I, you're, I don't want to promote this crazily at all, but I do know a colleague that, that uh, is in the microbiome field uh, and, and did this at home. Yep. Yeah. And um, you know, he, it, it's an N of one. So scientifically this isn't, this isn't sure. valid or robust in any way. And again, I would, you know, speaking to <laughs> sort of people out there sure. that I wouldn't recommend this, but you know, he tells a very compelling story. He's an educated person. And, right. and if you hear his story, I mean, it, it's super compelling. Uh, and it worked for him, like night and day. I believe it. Yeah. And, and you're and talking about just, someone that like suffered for like months and years. I believe it. And then after like, I think it was a week or two. Yeah. Like literally in remission now for yeah. years. And I've, so yeah. that's really compelling. I mean, that's an end of one, not scientific, obviously. And that doesn't mean we should still do it at home, but like it, it, Absolutely puts more faith in like FMT, yeah. but you, and you understand, you know, he, he, he didn't have access to FMT wow. in a, in a clinical setting. Wow. Right. And then, so you're sort of like, and he's, he's definitely not crazy. Like he knows no. he's, he's just desperate. So right. I, you, you can almost understand, you know, yeah. where this is coming from, but yeah, yeah. obviously making it more available is and through other approaches is, right. you know, well, well worth it. Yeah. you're totally right to push back on me being quite flippant about would you wouldn't do a blood transfusion at home but I guess I've never thought about it really as as deeply as I perhaps should have insofar as for some people it maybe feels like life or death yeah right and, yeah and it feels like their life's maybe not worth living because their quality of life is so bad and then when you're given that choice you know pushes you down one avenue yep. what I'm trying to do is create a form of FMT that's as safe compositionally consistent and as effective as possible, manufactured using a process that is more scalable than the current state of the art, which is lyophilization. And my mission in life is to get that to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, at a price that's um, affordable and, yeah. and, and ultimately, you know, cost effective. Because um, I'm aware that there are people doing it and they're not crazy. They're intelligent people who are absolutely desperate. Uh, maybe we should do an episode on DIY FMT. Yeah, uh, maybe. Sounds really yeah. interesting. I can give you a name. You can give me a name. And yeah. he'll be on your show maybe. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, that, no, seriously, that would be really cool. I'd, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. Okay, yeah. so just, yeah. I guess just to round, round it up then. Sure. I mean, this, yeah, is, no, this, this has been great. fascinating, by the yeah. way. So thank you. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. And we've talked about so much, including aliens and, and <laughs> the deep ocean microbes, yeah. which is so cool. I'm really pleased that we started to... We started out crazy. Yeah. It went super technical, right? I know, but this is, this is great. I mean, to be honest with you, Morgan, it's been a phenomenal conversation. We were going yeah. to talk about horizontal gene transfer and FMT. And maybe I can leave that for another time and another yeah, episode because sure. we've been on for a while now and uh, we've both got a day to, to go to i guess so absolutely thank you man oh uh, you're really welcome thanks it. for having me on that was thank great you so much yeah thank thanks. you <laughs>